Well, hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast. I hope this finds you well. Now today, I'm really pleased to be able to share with you a conversation that I hope will help you understand and think through the developing conflict and crisis in Ukraine. For today's podcast, I spent time talking with Mike Pierce. Mike is a church historian, originally from Britain, but now living in Croatia and the United States, where he is Emeritus Professor of History at Houghton College in Houghton, New York. Years before that, he taught at London School of Theology and was academic moderator for a New Frontiers training program. Mike is the author of several books, including, in my opinion, the brilliantly titled Why the Rest Hates the West, the book Gods of War, and a section within a new book due out in September entitled War, Peace and Violence for Christian Viewpoints. We had a really helpful conversation that I'm just sure is going to be a real help and blessing to many of us as we think through and pray for the situation as it unfolds in Ukraine. I was so grateful for his time. Mike was such a generous and warm-hearted individual. It was such a privilege to talk with him. He actually lectures widely still in Britain, the Balkans, Russia and America, where actually he has addressed the US congressional leadership. So uh, he knows what he's talking about. Uh, Well, for now, ladies and gentlemen, please give it up. And I'm pleased to introduce to you, Mr. Mike Pierce. Uh, Mike, thanks so much for being with us today. Great to be with you. Thank you. So, Mike, we're recording this a few weeks after the start of the, the conflict in Ukraine. And understandably, the, the focus of the world is on that part of the world. And churches, Christians, believers around the world focusing their prayers, hoping that, that something miraculous happens to bring an end to that fighting. And also us in the West kind of scratching our heads, trying to understand Putin's mentality and the mentality of the Russians in general, which for many of us um, seems to be locked off. <laughs> we can't quite understand. Russia does seem to be a, a mysterious entity that operates with a slightly different value system or just way of seeing itself than, than we perhaps are privy to. And so I'm really hoping that today you can help me. I, I'm coming at this completely um, ignorant, shall we say, <laughs> uh, although I have read your book, so I do know a fair, fair bit more than I did a few days ago. I'm coming at this very ignorant, naive, looking forward to understanding and learning more about the situation um, we're going to talk about that as well as Christian theories on conflict in general let's begin I tell you what with you um, why don't you just help us to understand Russia and some of the recent history of that nation that great part of the world well um, I do so a little um, nervously because I, I, I wouldn't describe myself as a, a specialist on Russia but maybe like a quasi Quasi, gosh, I'm going American. Quasi socialist. Um, um, I I like to describe it at the outset to my students: uh, Russia as a a wonderful, terrible country, um, because it's both. Um, uh, it has the most amazing culture. Uh, it has, in my humble opinion, produced the best literature in the world in the 19th century, and also despite maybe even because of um, Bolshevism in the 20th also, and on the track record so far, the 21st century is going to be about the same. Um, It's uh, amazing, but of course, as most people will know, it has an absolutely terrible history um, with tyrannical 
governments and some of the worst events in, in world history happening within its frontiers. Um, uh, it has, a, as you say, right, quite rightly, a very interesting mindset. Um, I suspect that some of its trauma and its uh, horrifying governments are partly connected with its vast size and the need to hold it all together and partly with the extremely difficult climate that it leads to a mentality that is in some ways, well, now this could be falling into a stereotype, some ways very harsh. Actually, many Russian people are extremely tender and gentle. There's this kind of cusp. But there's also, in more recent centuries, over the last 300 years, a, um, a very difficult uh, dilemma in Russian life. Uh, the, the most controversial character in Russian history is not Lenin or Stalin, it is Peter the Great in the early 18th century, um, who was determined to westernize Russia. And since then, the whole nature of Russian politics has been fought out along this fault line. Is Russia the anti-West? Is, is the definition of what Russia is um, over against the, the wicked, decadent, individualistic, legalistic West, that? Or um, is it actually um, trying to be a part of it or, or trying to mold itself in that shape? Uh, now, if you look at Putin, we could say that for the first decade of his rule from 2000, well, yeah, from 2000 to 2010, he kind of walked the cusp of that central division in Russian life. But I think we would have to conclude that in the last 10 or 12 years, he's come down pretty decisively in terms of defining the country as the, the anti-West. Um, but it remains a central dilemma. Um, if we look back to the communist times, and we saw a dissident like Solzhenitsyn, one of the great literary figures of um, uh, global literature um, in the 20th century, of course, and became a dissident and came to the West. And Westerners foolishly had the idea, well, he doesn't like the communist government, he must be our guy. And he came to the West, to America, to Britain, um, to France, and castigated Western countries. His objection to communism was not that what you know, that he, what he, he wanted it to be some kind of um, uh, capitalist democracy, but that communism was a wicked, enlightenment-derived, rationalist, Western creed. What he believed in was Holy Mother Russia. Um, and, and the mistake about him was ours all along. So those are the kinds of things we need to think about when we understand Russia. Yeah, I'd like to just, uh, that concept of the anti-West, I'm due to read Why the Rest Hates the West um, next week, actually, but is that is the precy of that book, really, that there is something about the West that the rest of the world finds as being quite repulsive and immoral? So help us to understand how a, a Russian narrative would view the West as, as, a, as a bad thing. Um, okay, I'll touch very briefly on one of the central arguments about why the rest hates the West, which is more looking in global terms uh, and hardly at all at Russia, and then quickly gravitate back to the Russian aspect of this. Um, I, I know you, you liked the title of my book, Why the Rest Hates the West. I, I have 
all along felt very uncomfortable with the H word in that title, but you're right, it probably helped to sell it. I think it sold more copies than all my other books put together. Um, it's not saying a lot, I suppose, but anyway, um, one of the central points I make there is that when non-Westerners contemplate the West, of course they want our standard of living, that level of material security, but they look at us and shudder because they do not want the cultural deracination, the rejection of all traditional moral codes um, and, and of religious faith very often, regardless for the moment of what, which particular faith that is, that goes with it. They see us as atomized, selfish individuals. They, and, and of course, sometimes when we look at them, we've, we look at them as being hypocritical. On the one hand, they want to immigrate here, um, but many of them don't want to live like us because the, the, they want to shelter themselves from it. They want the standard of living, as who would not, as who would not. Um, but they don't want the cultural and moral and spiritual price that they see quite rightly that we have paid. Um, although I would say in slight mitigation of ourselves, but it's not much, that the impression they get of us comes through generally our ghastly anti-cultural products from Hollywood and TV shows, which show us in an even more extreme light than, than the reality. And when people look at that... They're probably rightly appalled, yeah. yeah yes. Now, the, the, in the Russian case, it's a little different because their exposure to what Westerners are actually like is far greater than it would be if I'm living in Bangladesh, right? And their manner of life is somewhat more similar. But orthodoxy has defined itself against the Catholic and then Catholic and Protestant, because if you think of, as I like to say to my students when I wanted to wind them up, which is all the, all the time, what is Protestantism if not a Catholic heresy? Um, so orthodoxy defined itself against the Catholic West from the central Middle Ages, when Rome and Byzantium moved into schism formally in 1054. In fact, they've been growing apart for a while before, and there was at least some affinity after, but if you want a handy date to hang it on, that's the one. And um, one of the one of the big differences for pr in practical terms, never mind the, the kind of doctrinal subtleties or um, liturgical differences, in practical terms is that in the West, in the Middle Ages, the church was really stronger than the state. If I'm the king of France, you, I don't want to argue with the Pope. If he declares my feudal lords released from their vows of obedience to me, that may be the end of my life, never mind my kingdom. Right? Whereas in the in the Byzantine Empire, the church was definitely subject to the state, um, a feature which would be repeated in the Protestant Reformation, of course. Um, and that feature replicated itself with other states that embraced orthodoxy, including this state which most Westerners hadn't heard about until the last few weeks, but now most of them have, Kiev and Rus, which embraces a Byzantine orthodoxy in 988 under Prince Volodymyr or Vladimir, depending on whether we want to use the Ukrainian or Russian forms of his name, and is looked upon as the ancestor state by both modern Russia and modern Ukraine, which is difficult, right? I mean, th this is all a little ridiculous in nearly every case where modern states look upon a medieval ancestor state because, again, as I like to say to my students, that they were not uh, failed attempts at being new that they were themselves, they were not us back then, anticipating you and me now, they were themselves. But when 
two modern states claim the same paternity, uh, that gets really tricky. Uh, in, in words, the, the whole um, fantasy entailed in that process then becomes actually practically really difficult in the present. Okay, let's park that one for the moment because the state of Kievan Rus was destroyed by the Mongols in the early 13th century and the next major East Slavic state to emerge a century or two later was uh, Muscovy, centered on Moscow. And with the fall of the Byzantine Empire finally in 1453, that meant that the only orthodox population living under orthodox rulers was the population of Muscovy. And that made, made um, in the, with the passing of time, exalted claims for that state until by the early 16th century, you get uh, Philotheus of Piskov describing uh, Moscow as the third Rome. The first Rome was Rome. The second Rome was Byzantium, New Rome. And the third Rome is Moscow and a fourth there shall not be, he says. Now, this is, this is all mere chatter amongst the ruling classes in church and state at the time. That doesn't penetrate to how your average mujik, your Russian peasant thinks for a long, long time to come. But eventually it does get there. And Russia has in some ways a similar kind of problem to that of the United States. It comes to see itself as having a mission in the world. Lord preserve us from states that think they have a mission in the world because it becomes very difficult for others to live in peace with them. And that mission in the Russian Orthodox conception is of uh, it's certainly being the definitive Christian bastion in the world, and, and basically the, the, the Christianizer of the world. Now, that takes some mental acrobatics for Westerners who haven't grown up with that way of thinking to comprehend, but many people believe it. Mm. I mean, there seems to be, we're, we're familiar with that level of, I don't know, religio-national myth, I think. You know, the, um, we, we would say perhaps in our times that the Americans seem to have adopted some level of that that they are the enforcers of Christian yes. morality or? Well, and the British Empire had something, some similar idea in the 19th century. Yes, exactly. Now, in the, in the 20th century, of course, you, everybody's going to be saying, well, you know, you've got an atheist regime in charge. Yes. But this underlying sense is taken and secularized by the communists. But well, we are the vanguard, not of Christianity, um, but of... Um, uh, of socialism in the world. And that was very much um, a widely held belief right through the communist period. With the ending of communism, it's flipped back again. Now, uh, and it is this that Putin has picked up on. Now, uh, I, I'm not gonna even attempt to try and get inside his head to think how much he seriously believes that. It may even be a meaningless question. Um, uh, I suspect that he holds this with more than a pinch of salt, but it doesn't matter. Um, the, the, the point is that he uh, is prepared to utilize it. I think his deepest beliefs are probably in Russian nationalism. And since in modern times, you know, that's incorporated a certain kind of very rigid Russian orthodoxy, he is going along with that. Now, he makes the argument that uh, Russians and Ukrainians are one and the same people, uh, because they both go back to Kiev and Rus. And most of Ukraine was incorporated within Russian realms, uh, Russian ruled realms from the late 18th century. Uh, and 
after the Second World War, even Western Ukraine, which had never been part of any Russian realm before, was. But of course, Western Ukraine is rather different to the rest of Ukraine in that it's far more westernized. It was part of Polish states and then the Aust Austro-Hungarian Empire and then Poland again between the two world wars. Um, that doesn't mean that all of its population are Catholic, but a significant number are, or they belong to what we call the Greek Catholic Church or Uniate Churches. There are a number of Uniate Churches in the world, and they nearly all result from historical periods when Orthodox populations lived under Catholic rule and basically did a deal with their rulers to become part of the Catholic Church as long as nothing changed. <laughs> so their priests could still had beards, could still marry. Um, uh, Orthodox liturgy was followed, not Catholic, but prayers were said for the Pope and on the doctrinal differences, which most ordinary people don't understand anyway, they came down on the Catholic side. But it meant a cultural identification in the long run with the West. And so the, the, the biggest and most important of the Greek Catholic churches is in uh, Western Ukraine. And it has become a kind of symbolic for Ukrainian nationalism. It is about being definitely not Russian. There are plenty of Orthodox people in Ukraine as a whole, including in Western Ukraine, but they have, particularly since 2014, been uh, increasingly tilting towards the West anyway. That's a bit of a simplification, but it'll probably have to do. So, so yeah, that's the religious aspect of this. I mean, concerning um, evangelicals, it is a very noticeable pattern, and this doesn't just affect Ukraine. And I think most of your pastors and other people in New Frontiers will want to pay attention here. It is extremely noticeable that the areas in Central and Eastern Europe where evangelicals have picked up by best by far is where there are uniate churches. Now, why should that be? Are uniate churches, uh, Greek Catholic churches, are they any closer to being evangelical than Catholic Orthodox? Not at all. But what it means is that there is a religiously mixed population of some Cat Roman Catholics, some Greek Catholics, uniate and Orthodox, and you, nearly always there are places where there were plenty of Jews and Germans, some of whom were Protestant anyway, and, and so on. And when, what that means is when your average Baptist, your average Pentecostal missionary goes there, how the locals going to look at them? Well, everybody's of mixed parentage, or very many people are, and we've got all these different groups here anyway. What's one more going to hurt, right? Whereas if you go to um, uh, somewhere in Dalmatia, in a Dalmatia in Croatia, where they would be, as the Germans would say, Glatschwarz Catholic, which was 100% Catholic. Who's going to be the first one to step out of line and join you? Nobody, right? You go into Shumadia in central Serbia, where everybody's Orthodox. They've got the same situation. That's going to be blooming hard, and it still is. You look where the evangelicals have grown. They've grown in Western Ukraine, particularly West Ukraine more generally, but particularly Western Ukraine, Transylvania in, in what's now Romania. Hungarians might say it should still be Hungary. And, and so on, and those other kinds of mixed areas. Where there are those unique churches, that's where evangelicals have prospered. They went to a place that was already a mix and they made it even more of a mix and nobody cares. So, so evangelicals have got skin in this game well in Ukraine. Mm. Yeah, we have a number of our um, churches in Ukraine will obviously be evangelical, but they'll be um, caught in the, the mess as everybody else is. Oh, it's desperately, desperately sad for watching the situation unfold and, and really hard for us to understand. You know, we we find it very hard to understand, um, given the news coverage that we've received, at least very hard to understand why Russia would invade when it appears 
from our point of view at least, that Ukraine has not done anything to provoke that. Um, can you help us to understand perhaps um, from the Russian point of view how it may appear differently? Okay, let, let's look at their argument. Um, when the Cold War ended, NATO said that they would not expand closer to Russia's borders. And we have admitted every last formerly communist country that asked for admission, including three, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, that were actually in the Soviet Union itself, never mind in the, in the Warsaw Pact block. And now we're talking in terms of Ukraine as well. And Ukraine was divided on this question, but since Russia started pushing them around badly in 2014, Ukrainians are now much more united in wanting to be part of the of NATO and the EU. So, you know, Putin has been almost as good at creating his own enemies as American fundamentalism in recent years. You know, it's like <laughs> you create your own enemies um, by, by your whole pattern of behavior. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the, the fact remains that we have been encouraging them down that path. And uh, so the Russian government isn't prepared to stand for it. I, I would maintain, actually, that although that really does matter to them, for Putin, it is far more the threat of Ukraine becoming a full-on democracy rather than a highly dysfunctional, utterly corrupt democracy. It's now going to clean up the corruption, becoming full-on democracy embracing EU-type standards and so on. And that is an existential threat to Lukashenko's regime in Belarus and Putin's in Russia, because people can get ideas, you know. Uh, and so that's, he has to stop this. And ideally, he would like Ukraine as a regime, something in his own image that's clearly not going to be obtainable. So what he wants is for it to be permanently hobbled, permanently corrupt, as it has been, and with dodgy, tumultuous politics, and keep it like that permanently. The last thing he wants is for it to start to break clear of all of that, as it has been beginning to do. Oh, I see. I mean, that's that's really helpful, just in trying to understand, like you said, from the Russian point of view, uh, how they're seeing this. I guess our, our conversation today is, I know you've written a lot on different Christian responses to conflict. And I think at the, at the outbreak of war, one of the first things that probably every Christian starts to think about is, would I take a life? Would I pick up a gun? Would I defend my people? Should I even do that? Jesus is quite clear, it seems, to not resist the one who's evil. And yet we're aware, we're aware um, you know, of Augustine's just war theory that, of course, he developed from Cicero. And there seems to be quite a lot of just general confusion about that um it's all right if we kind of let's take the conversation slightly in that direction to say okay now um, having understood how the conflicts perhaps originated and the different mindsets involved and histories involved now how should christians respond if you're in ukraine and further afield with us in europe what should our response be okay well um i want to say to start off with that i'm probably going to leave most listeners unhappy in a sense, whether or not they necessarily object to anything that I might want to say, but that I'm not going to be able to give clear-cut answers. My, my own position on this is, and I'll be the first to admit, incoherent. But, but when I say incoherent, I am um, quite clear that I, am, on the one hand, cannot be a pacifist. That's very regretful. I, I, I admire really consistent pacifism. I'm rather scornful of some other varieties. Um, uh, but at the same time, um, I, I do not and cannot for a moment believe in Augustine's just war criteria or really any other attempts to regulate or control war. Not that I think it shouldn't be tried, 
but that I would want to insist that it's finally impossible because war has an inner evil dynamic of its own. The, the, the phrase I constantly find myself resorting to is that war is radical evil and it drags everybody down to the vortex. It does not even allow you, unless you're willing to yield up the innocent to slaughter, not to participate. And if you do agree to participate, the very constraints you try to hedge it about with will be weaponized um, by various people at various points. So it cannot finally be successful. But I suppose the, the, the big thing for me is, and here I'm afraid we, we have to get into a little bit of fairly heavy duty theology. Uh, I would want to insist that Jesus' kingdom is not of this world and that there cannot therefore be a genuinely Christian political discourse, state structure, legal system, economy, or anything else. That's not to say that Christians can't be involved in any of those things. I'm very interested in all of them. Well, legal stuff leaves me a little dry, but but, but I'm very interested in all of them, um, extremely so. But but that I think it is absolutely forbidden for Christians to say, and this is the or even really a Christian view. Politics is something I do on my own time, uh, and that to baptize my political opinions. And in this case, of course, we're talking about the possibility of engaging in war, whether thus says the Lord or this is the Bible's view, is, I would say, finally blasphemous. Now, that's because and I'm trading, I'll just mention this gently and then back away from it. Um, I know um, that the, the, the New Frontiers theological outlook is gently and moderately reformed. Um, that is not my own view at all. In fact, I'm not even Augustinian. Uh, and I like to say with just a little bit of pride uh, uh, that I think I was one of um, New Frontiers, um, not merely tolerated, but welcomed non-reformed types when I was quite strongly involved with them um, a number of years ago. You're very welcome. This is one of the things I love about New Frontiers. They're, they're one of my favourite outfits in, in British evangelicalism. Um, because of the way they go about things. Um, and I'm not just saying that because that's who I'm talking to. I, I say that to anybody. Uh, but nevertheless, I don't agree there. And the, the stumbling block is that that whole theology is finally tied up with a view of a Christian state. And although lots of Christians, including New Frontiers, um, have seen that the church is composed of converted Christians and they're the ones who are baptized and that the church has nothing to do with the state. This, this kind of theologizing constantly drags them back along this false path. And I'm the hooligan that was one to come in and say, stop, stop. <laughs> it, it'll take you the wrong way every darn time. A lot of it comes down to hermeneutics and the relationship we understand between the Old Testament and the New because the Old Testament will give you a blueprint for a society, let's say, run God's way. Now, you know, I know everybody knows that it didn't work and, and it was always going wrong and God was having to correct people. But nevertheless, that was the, that was the ideal, right? And along comes Jesus. And with the New Testament, what we have is a kingdom that's not of this world. It's for anybody who wants to come from anywhere around the world, but it's calling them out of the world. And the laws that he gives his people are incapable of being translated into a public law. Now, now, to cut a long discussion short here, just anybody listening to this, you go back and you read the Sermon on the Mount. 
and you just try the mental exercise of translating any of those commands that Jesus gives into uh, a public law. I mean, it's, it's a laugh. You, you will just laugh because it's impossible. Right? That's the point. Now, when we look at the, the early church fathers, and by early church fathers, I mean first, second, third, very early fourth centuries, they understand this. They understand when they refer to the Old Testament, they understand it Christologically as referring to the person of Christ, or as modern scholars would like to say, you know, around the, the Christ event. Okay, sure. But with the fourth century and the adoption of Christianity as the rationale for the late Roman Empire, there is what is what I would call a hermeneutical revolution. Instead of reading the Old Testament in the light of the New, we start to read the New Testament in the light of the Old. And the New Testament just tells you how to get saved. And the Old Testament apparently gives you a rationale for running a Christian state. The very thing that Jesus has forbidden from the outset. And at that point, now to come back to our topic here, Christian participation in war ceases to be a question of how far can my following Jesus allow me to surrender my conscience up to a military commander or a political leader? The answer to which question is almost always never, right? To theorizing about statecraft and when can a Christian state get involved with the war. Now, as I try to point out in Gods of War, because go back a bit, Augustine comes along late on in this Christianization of the state process. He's grown up in a situation, even before he becomes a Christian himself in 386, um, he's grown up in a situation in which the Roman state is creepingly becoming you know, Christian, if such a thing were possible. And so he's, it's his, his later theology which includes this stuff about just war, which is trying to rationalise what by his time is being taken for granted. Now, if this sounds like I'm kind of gratuitously kicking him in the groin, let's just, let me cut him a little slack here, because this is what we're all doing all of the time, right? We, we, we are thoughtlessly, most of us, taking the presuppositions of our own society and trying to baptise them. Because, because we've kind of grown up with things that we think of as common sense, but aren't common sense at all, but they become so in our society, and then trying to give some kind of Christian rationale for them. And not to offend too many people at once here, let's take some postmodern Western phenomenon, counselling. You think of all the books that have come out about, you know, um, biblical counselling um, and Christian... There's no such thing till the 1980s. I mean, I'm not... Don't get me wrong here. I'm not writing all of that off. The that's, Bible doesn't say anything about point. it. Yeah. Right, right. Or, or Christian rationales for human rights. I mean, human rights is an 18th century word game. <laughs> it, it doesn't exist before that. There is simply nothing. Um, and, and anybody who doesn't believe that, read chapter three of my Why the Rest. I'd love to know, so just to jump in quickly, because I'd love to, where, where my mind goes is, so often it's said that, you know, Western laws, Western morality or whatever is is based on the Ten Commandments and then C.S. Lewis's concept of the, the universal Tao, that there is a moral law that we have tried to use as our starting point. Should we never have done that? Like, should we have never have tried to make the Ten Commandments part of a Christian state or even began that experiment? Well, they shouldn't have been a Christian state. But, but uh, I mean, don't get me wrong here. I mean, I think C.S. Lewis's Abolition of Man is the most wonderful book ever written and has transformed my life and has allowed me to escape the possibly narrow confines of my 
broadly Anabaptist theology, which if I followed it to the last would say, so you can't, you know, you just got to hide away from society and not get engaged at all. And, and his book made it plain that I can stand up and contend for morality in the public square without in the next breath having to fall back on because the Bible says so, which is A, a false move in theology, and B, there's no reason that should possibly convince my non-Christian neighbour. Right. He can show that I can fall back on much broader grounds. So, yeah, it's actually a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book. Okay, right, so back to Augustine. So by his, even during his early life, but certainly by his late career, it is now axiomatic that Christianity is somehow a programme for running the Roman Empire. And he theologizes that, right? So, um, and I think that's all completely wrong, um, but he's not doing anything any worse than Christians have done ever since and are doing right now. And, and he picks up on uh, the, the just war criteria, the pagan just war criteria of Cicero actually, and, and quite consciously kind of gives those a, um, a Christian spin. The, the, the point I would wanna make is that Anybody who's referred to those ever since, you know, um, they always find themselves justified and legitimized by his just war criteria. So what on earth does that mean when two warring parties can claim this? It's 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 nonsense. Mm. But we have to sympathize with Augustine, surely, that there's there was never a time before that where the the leader of the state became supposedly a Christian. And so Jesus, you might Jesus probably I don't know if you say this, never thought that never foresaw this. That, like you said, the Christian movement was always supposed to be uh, a kind of a narrow way as opposed to the broad path that everybody observes. So, yes. so given the reality of Christians uh, having power in the public space, it's a it's a, like you said, we all do this all the time. As soon as I step outside my front door and try to live as a Christian, I'm trying to work out how my my narrow way of following Jesus interacts with the, you know, the social sphere. So I can sympathize with how, why he's doing it and the challenges that, that he and everybody else since then has faced. Yeah. 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 No, I, yeah, I, I can, I can, I can sympathize with that. Um, uh, but at the same time, I can't, I can't believe in that program. Um, Do you think it should never have been called Christian in the first place? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For, uh, but, but that's all tied up with the, the, the central point that I make that there can't be a, a Christian politics, a Christian state and all the rest of it. Um, I, I, I think you probably read, well, if you've finished reading um, God's War, you've seen it. Um, I give a little anecdote from my time in the classroom in London uh, when teaching on ethics and, and about war. Um, I used to play a very dirty trick on my students and ask them to give me an example of a war that they were quite certain would be justified in terms of the just war criteria. And of course, I knew exactly what they would say, um, partly because the the dominant discourse in our society and partly from their at least relative historical ignorance they would all point to world war ii and, and of course uh, i could point out that most of the fighting and dying were done was done were done um in the conflict between absolute evil and absolute evil on the eastern front stalin and hitler but let's take it into the terms that they meant some tolerable societies in the west against the absolute evil of of uh, nazi germany okay and then i would run off all of the war crimes perpetrated by the Western allies during and immediately after the war. So, and, but they, but, and then I would concede to them that they were right, that that most certainly was the best case. And if that's the best case, what about all the others? This is your point that evil, that war being absolute evil, it sucks you down. But actually it may, it may have been just in the sense that it was right to resist absolute evil, but it, we degraded ourselves in the process. Yes, yes. 
Now, what all that has to say about the current conflict in Ukraine and Russia, I don't know. Like all the rest of us, I am emotionally, I mean, or even though I love Russia and I have wonderful Russian friends and I'm very worried about them right now, uh, as it comes to this conflict, I mean, there's, there's no doubt in my mind um, uh, that, that, that my heart is absolutely with Ukraine and the Ukrainians, but perhaps my emotions are being completely swayed by everything that's happened right now. And perhaps after it's all over, we might find out some dirty deeds done on the Ukrainian side. I, I don't know. I find that hard to imagine at the moment, but as always with these conflicts, um, we find out a load more afterwards than we knew at the time. We're living in the fog of war. So do, can we say, in trying to establish how a, a Christian ought to respond in a time like this, could we say, and it might be even hard to say, but could we say that we'd, we can all agree that a Christian should never be an aggressor? Yes. So a Christian should never never preempt evil, uh, like minority report style, and try to stamp it out, before, like the old argument of, would you kill Hitler before 1939 if you knew, you know? Yes, 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 yes. yes. Well... You see, you've just put, that was the hesitation in my aggressor there, right? You've just put your finger on precisely the the kind of issue there. So I I don't know. Yeah, and I suppose we could all say that we, even in saying, could even in the way that you answered the question about the Russian-Ukraine conflict, who's to say that Ukraine hasn't behaved as an aggressor, given its um, closening relationship with NATO and NATO's original statement that it wouldn't or invade Russian space. You could argue that. Well, I, I think if there, is a guilty, if there is a guilty party that is not Russia, it's probably not Ukraine. I think its moves towards NATO are entirely understandable as one of self-preservation. It may be for NATO for encouraging it rather than saying, look, in the long run, your best interests are served by a studied ambiguity and neutrality, even if a heavily armed neutrality. Um, but but I, I, I don't know. This is second guessing everybody. But um, sorry, just help me to understand this point as well, that given that NATO is an entirely defensive alliance, how is that? How can that be seen by Putin as an act of aggression? Um, like it, it, presuming as long as no one attacks a NATO country, a NATO country can never attack another. So why is there, there's no threat? <laughs> yeah, as the Germans might say, so weit die Theorie. That, 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 but, but theoretically, it, well, it doesn't feel that way if you're Russia, right? You're feeling crept up upon. And if you want to have a system that is not the one prevailing in most NATO countries, and you feel that this thing's becoming a hydra head, increasingly strangling you territorially, you're going to have a very different kind of response. And you don't need to be someone appalling like Putin to think that. You could be a lot more moderate than that. So I, I don't know. I mean, because to follow the logic of that argument, you'd say, well, NATO could spread all the way around the world then. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's return to our question of uh, how should a Christian respond. You've said that although um, it's clear that the teaching of Jesus, at least, is pacifist, pacifistic, whatever the word is, you would yeah you would also concede that it's still nevertheless impossible for a state to be a pacifistic state, except for about twenty minutes, as you said <laughs> in your books. Yeah, a, a state could remain pacifist for twenty minutes until another country attacks it. Um, so, oh, can I just tag on that one there a little? Because yes. when I said earlier that um, 
I have the deepest respect for consistent pacifists. I'm a bit scornful of other kinds. And what do I mean by those other kinds? Those who try to turn pacifism into politics. If you are a pacifist, you have forsworn politics. There is, for the reason that you yourself just mentioned and quoted, that you can't have a pacifist state. All states that have come into existence have come into existence as a result of violence, either their own or other people's. And they continue to subsist on the basis of implied use of force. There is no other kind of state. And if people want to point to tiny microstates like well, the Vatican City, the Vatican City was the bit of the former Vatican states that spread across central Italy that the new Italian national state in the 19th century wanted to leave intact because they didn't want every Catholic in the world to turn around and damn them. <laughs> so there's a postage size bit left there. Um, and something similar is true of the San Marinos and the Andorras of this world. They exist in the same way that defenseless babies and very old people exist in society. They are protected by everybody else for reasons that seem important to them. Um, so the idea of a pacifist politics is a is a nonsense. Okay, so so but nevertheless, a Christian exists in. I mean, we. I think you um, don't go with Augustine's and, and Luther's kind of notion of two kingdoms, but a Christian nevertheless is caught between those two two worlds, two positions of being personally committed to the way of Jesus, who is non-violent. But then also having to decide, and I, I'd like to—I don't know if I can read this in your book, the section of the book you wrote in um, that's coming out in September. I just thought the introduction to that was terrifying. Um, and it was and, intended to be. <laughs> yeah, intense and terrifying. Um, do you mind if I read this? Because I think this will really help people to just engage with this. Um, Fresh. So you've, you've said this. It is the 1990s in Sierra Leone and tonight you are keeping watch on the edge of a village for the country is in the middle of a complex and brutal civil war. Out there you are pretty sure the child soldiers of the Revolutionary Uni United Front, the RUF. Repeatedly raped and brutalised, they have been both terrorised by their commanders and utterly inured to horrific violence. And here they come, now, through the gloom. As well as guns, they are wielding machetes, which they use to hack off the hands and feet or, or whole limbs of men, women and children alike. High on drugs, they cut open pregnant women in grotesque games to be set to be to bet on the sex of the unborn child. And you have a gun. And here's what I want to ask you. Will you use it? And, you know, I, I confess before before reading your book, uh, the other, only other book I'd read on this was Preston Sprinkle's book, Fight, uh, advocates for, you know, traditional Christian non-violent responses to conflict. And I think personally convinced, committed that actually in the face of violence, I should run away rather than run towards. But in reading that, I'm thinking, yeah, you're right. It's actually all that is required for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing. Um I'm now reading that thing that I just quoted to you thinking, I, I, I think I should should use a gun. <laughs> so is that kind of a pragma pragmatic? Well, of course, I'm deliberately sitting up there and then later in the next page, one other scenario in which the, the dilemma is literally impossible. Whatever you do or fail to do is absolutely horrendous. And, and that's the point. And, and, and I think a lot of us... Um, well, let's take let's go back to the Ukraine Russia situation right now. You know, let's suppose I consider myself as um, going to fight for the Ukrainians, or I am a Ukrainian, I'm going to fight. 
and perhaps I visualize myself as gunning down brutal thugs who've come to destroy my country. But when you look at the act what actually happens in conflicts, the first soldiers to be killed are not those. They are unwilling 18-year-old Russian boys who didn't even know that they were invading. You know, or, or think of the World War II situation. You're going to kill brutal, murderous Nazi thugs. And who actually gets killed? It, it, the majority of them are the, the equivalents there. Or, or perhaps um, people from the Soviets, Soviet Union who've been captured, put in German uniforms, and you're going to fight. You know, a, a third, uh, not a third, about a, a 20 to 25% of all the Nazi soldiers captured by the British and Americans and Canadians after D-Day were Soviet citizens in Nazi uniform. Didn't know that. So, wow. you know, it's, 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 it, it's never the way that people imagine, even when you're fighting something that's absolutely evil. And so... Is is the best we can hope for a kind of a Christian pragmatism? We we kill people, but reluctantly, or we fight back, but reluctantly. Um, yes, 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 and 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 that it is almost impossible to make rules. All we can do is weep and sometimes fight. Mm. I think you you. Yes. Um, I really appreciate you actually you quoted Romans 7 didn't you and the apostle Paul says who will save me from this body of death and that's actually as you as I read that I thought yeah of course we we use that in reference to our you know our, our fight against the desires of the flesh but actually more broadly speaking it's about the reality of living in a fallen world having to deal with having to choose between evil and evil um breaking one commandment or another commandment <laughs> we might say yes yeah uh, and and is that you think actually the the more honest picture of what the christian life looks like in the modern way or the modern world or a world like this we could say the fallen world yeah yeah absolutely absolutely we we, we see I, th I think one of our problems as western christians regardless of any theological differences we might have is that we um underestimate the radicality of evil in the world and in ourselves. We accept sinfulness as a doctrine because there it is, it's, it's, it's an important Christian doctrine, but, but our whole upbringing as Westerners inclines us to disbelieve it um, concerning its radicality inside of ourselves. I mean, although, as I've already made claim, uh, plain, my, um, my theological differences with Luther would be pretty huge, but he is my favorite on one thing only, that he understood that sinfulness inside ourselves is literally a bottomless pit. There is no bottom. It keeps on going down. And existentially, he had a stronger grasp on that than any other Christian I've ever read. You know, I don't go along with his whole rationale around that, but the actual existential hold of it, he'd got it. Um, but something similar, we have a similar problem when we look at our society because since the 18th century we've told ourselves that there is somehow some kind of ideal social or political equilibrium that we can strive for and there isn't right that that our whole engagement is about the mitigation of evils that's that's all there is that's all there is um it's wonderful to strive for the good and the best it is delusional and will finally become tyrannical to think that we can identify it and impose it because we can't. 
there's, there's my Christianity bleaching into my politics there for a minute. I need to be Johnny Kip. The one thing, the one thing I say I try not to do. Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose, yeah, my question was going to be, if you, if you were a pastor in Ukraine right now, um, would you be telling your people to, to, you wouldn't be blessing or sanctioning violence in Jesus' name, but would you be, how would, yeah, maybe that's just the question. What would you be doing if you're a pastor right now? I would not be telling them what to do. I would, if they wanted to flee, I would be helping them to flee. If they wanted to fight, I would be praying with them and praying for them. I would not be urging them in one direction or another. Although the brutal reality is um, that uh, almost nobody would have any choice anyway. But, but insofar as they did, I would be simply, I would see it my duty is to be supportive of that and to stay with those who were staying, whether they were fighters or non-fighters, until the last. Wow. And, and I suppose... You're saying there that they they wouldn't have a choice in as much as they'd be conscripted. Um, yes. And is this the sort of situation where, as a Christian, your rationale would would be, well, I have no choice. The Lord would under the Lord understands I have no choice, or He knows my frame. He remembers that I'm dust, that I'm living, choosing yes. between two evils. Is that how you'd process it in your own conscience? Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I suppose in a similar way to perhaps how Bonhoeffer ended up processing his time in Nazi Germany, where eventually he said, well, although, you know, you might say from his reading of Cost of Discipleship, although I'm a pacifist, actually, I think I should kill this man. <laughs> yes, I, I, I smile as you mentioned him because that was that name had come to my mind as well. I mean, I think he, Bonhoeffer is one of my heroes. I think he worked in a whole load of theological confusion, partly because of his background, and the time he was in, and somehow, despite it all, he hacked his way clear to some incredibly profound insights on this and a whole load of other subjects. I mean, his, his cost of discipleship may be the best devotional book ever written, certainly in modern times. You know, it's up there with... And it's not Russian. Um, uh, with Akempis' Imitation of Christ. Sorry? <laughs> I said it's not Russian. You said all the best literature is Russian. <laughs> <laughs> Cost of discipleship doesn't really count as literature, but there it <laughs> counts as somewhere between devotional and theological. But yeah, yeah. I mean, his his exposition of the Sermon on the Mount is devastating. Yes, mm. and and perhaps some of his confusion you might you might say was born of the fact that he was processing a compromising church and the kind of well, well, and also his background within the within the sort of um, the, the the Protestant state churches of Germany. I mean, one of the things that makes me smile whenever I read it is he's, on the one hand, he's wanting to affirm Luther in the Lutheran background, but he is quite consciously trying to unpick everywhere that that misleads people into, to go in a totally other direction. Um, it's very interesting to watch that process going on, but that's maybe not a discussion for now. Well, no, and it, it just strikes me that this this isn't a new question for Christians, as you you know point out in your book, the amount of conflicts um, that have occurred in history. That it seems that this is maybe a new new question for us as a generation 
or certainly myself as a generation, to really have to wrestle with and think through, uh, this isn't you. And so actually people like Bonhoeffer who've done a lot of the heavy lifting in trying to understand the Christian position, this is really important that we grapple with. The other person, of course, you quote toward the end of the book is um, the example of Martin Luther King in the States, yeah. um, can you, which is a, an alternative Christian response that you seem to have quite a lot of respect for as well. Could you just uh, talk to us a bit about the, the merits and shortcomings of that perhaps? Yeah. Well, insofar as I understand Martin Luther King, I think he was actually pacifist. But his idea is that we will um, we will outmatch your ability to inflict evil by our ability to absorb it uh, until you are converted and and we will win you so that the victory, as he said, will be a double victory. Now, now um, something analogous to that was done by Gandhi in India with the British. But I think that it could only work where your opponents, bad things though they were doing, were suffused with some kind of Christian conscience, or plenty of them were. And, and this was where, this was Bonhoeffer's problem. He realised that there was not that patch to be found in Hitler and the Nazi leadership, that that couldn't be done. And therefore, that meant the only alternative is to take him out. And of, and of course, sadly, it didn't work. You know, if the if the bomb plot in July 1944 had succeeded, the war would probably have ended there. And most of the Germans, the seven million Germans who died in the war, died after July 1944. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, that the reality that Bonhoeffer's assassination attempt failed, or the one that he was involved in failed, but then also re learning that several other assassination attempts of Hitler were attempted and failed, and, and the circumstances by which they failed seemed, uh, you wouldn't say this, but nothing short of miraculous that Hitler didn't die, why the bomb didn't go off in the plane, how he was spared when the bomb, when the bomb yeah, did yeah. go off just a few feet from him. Uh, as yes, you yeah. read these things, it does remind you of what... Um, the, the Bible says about it's, it's the Lord who establishes kings and takes kings out um, and not for us. But maybe that's a political statement. I, I, w I would have problems with where you're taking that. But anyway, let's not view. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have problems yeah. with where I'm taking a lot of my thoughts, Mike. <laughs> I'm grappling with this, wrestling with this. And, and actually, even just in you know your honest response to how you behave and be as a Christian in Ukraine right now, as a Christian pastor in Ukraine. Of course, that's not a hypothetical situation for so many pastors at the moment. No, 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 I know. It's 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 all too real. All too real. Mm. Yeah. Awful. Well, Mike, we've run out of time in our conversation. Um, there's so much that you've said in kind of spinning my thoughts and uh, in helping equip us. Because one question I do have is, um, that I'm, I'm meant to ask as I'm reading your book, you, you seem to have a very realistic understanding of the corrupting nature of human beings when it comes to using religion for their own means and even Christians embroiled in that conflict for themselves how um how do how do you not lose your own faith in the process as you realize the humanity of and the corruptibility of Christians in this process well I I think probably because I'm I'm an extremely hard-boiled, nasty man. Um, <laughs> um, I, I mean, I, I should say um, that I wasn't um, brought up in a in a Christian household. Becoming a Christian was 
my was my teenage rebellion and I'm still doing it. Um, and one of the things I had to learn early on, as I think many Christians do, but but perhaps being hard-headed, I suppose, it, it went down a long way, was that you 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 have to follow Christ because Christians will let you down. They will do bad things. And it's not a case of feeling superior to other people because as you look at yourself, you realize, you know, how one's not a good example oneself at all. And so it's not necessarily a case of throwing mud at others. But I think on, on this question, here's, here's something I just posted this morning, actually. Uh, and it comes in the context of someone who put up a picture of um, a, a, a very, very recent photograph of the Russian Armed Forces Church in Moscow. And it's kind of blasphemous, you know, really conflating Russian Orthodoxy with the, the Russian military and, and so on. And I, I simply wrote this, just a few sentences touching on precisely this point. The uncomfortable fact has to be faced that many Christians, in quotes, Catholic, Orthodox and Protestant, including many in the US, are not actually Christians, not because they do not agree with me, that would be infantile and blasphemous as an accusation, but because it's clear that their real religion is their politics, that the faith is mere baptismal oil for their secular goals and tribal identities, enabling them to say, Deus vult, it's the will of God after it. It doesn't matter whether you call yourself an evangelical or anything else, nor whether your politics are right, left or center. If that's the true substance, one simply not a disciple of Christ who has no earthly kingdom and whose followers have here no abiding city, but seek rather one which is to come. And, you know, that's, I think that recent events, whether we're looking at sort of rabid stuff happening in America, or whether we're looking at this, make that more and more plain. And we need to be very hard headed amongst ourselves and, and about ourselves, it should lead us to constant self-examination. Yes. That's a really helpful answer. Thank you so much. We do this at a purely personal level. I think just the stupid squabbles that go on in church and everybody wants to immediately use poor old God as moral combat gear in their, in their squabbles with one another. So it's done at a much more mundane level than simply politics or war and mm. peace. And as, as you made that comment about... Um, Martin Luther's existential observation about how we are a bottomless potential bottomless pit of evil or sin inside us is, you know, you can see that within the very natural desire, natural, we might say, desires of your flesh. If, if I wanted to, I could just gorge myself on chocolate or alcohol and find, as Solomon said, you know, the stomach has no no end of filling or the eye no fit, yes, is never yes, full yes. of seeing. And it, it, it we observe that on a personal level. That's what an alcoholic or a drug addict is, someone who never reaches the, the bottom of the pit that is their desire and need for alcohol. And if that's true on a personal fleshly level, why would that not also be true when it comes to the the sin of murder and taking another life and yes. the power that's attached to that, that you could drink and drink and drink of that and never reach the bottom of your need for it and desire for it. Well, Mike, thank you so much for your time. I encourage everyone to be buying your books. because like to be with you. And, and um, uh, if anybody from the NFI team remembers me from centuries ago, hello, greetings. <laughs> I hope to see you again sometime. Lovely to talk with you and um, I hope we're in touch again real soon.